chapter 4, verses 1 to 17, Moses answered, What if they do not believe me or listen to me and say, The Lord did not appear to you? Then the Lord said to him, What is that in your hand? A staff, he replied. The Lord said, Throw it on the ground. Moses threw it on the ground, and it became a snake, and he ran from it. Then the Lord said to him, Reach out your hand and take it by the tail. So Moses reached out and took hold of the snake, and it turned back to a staff in his hand. This, said the Lord, is so that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. Then the Lord said, put your hand inside your cloak. So Moses put his hand into his cloak, and when he took it out, the skin was leprous. It had become as white as snow. Now put it back into your cloak, he said. So Moses put his hand back into his cloak, and when he took it out, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. Then the Lord said, If they do not believe you or pay attention to the first sign, they may believe the second. But if they do not believe these two signs or listen to you, take some water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground. The water you take from the river will become blood on the ground. Moses said to the Lord, Pardon your servant, Lord. I have never been eloquent, neither in the past, nor since you have spoken to your servant. I am slow of speech and tongue. The Lord said to him, Who gave human beings their mouths? Who makes them deaf or mute? Who gives them sight or makes them blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now go, I will help you speak, and will teach you what to say. But Moses said, Pardon your servant, Lord. Please send someone else. Then the Lord's anger burned against Moses, and he said, What about your brother, Aaron the Levite? I know he can speak well. He is already on his way to meet you, and he will be glad to see you. You shall speak to him and put words in his mouth. I will help both of you speak and will teach you what to do. He will speak to the people for you, and it will be as if he were your mouth and as if you were God to him. But take this staff in your hand so that you can perform the signs with it. Chapter 4, verses 21 to 26. The Lord said to Moses, When you return to Egypt, see that you perform before Pharaoh all the wonders I have given you the power to do. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let his people go, the people go. Then say to Pharaoh, This is what the Lord says. Israel is my firstborn son, and I told you, let my son go, so that he may worship me, but you refuse to let him go, so I will kill your firstborn son. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met Moses and was about to kill him, but Zipporah took a flint knife 
cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it. Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me, he said. So the Lord let him alone. At that time she said bridegroom of blood, referring to circumcision. Chapter 5, verses 1 to 9. Afterwards, Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Let my people go, so that they may hold a festival to me in the wilderness. Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord, that I should obey him and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and I will not let Israel go. Then they said, The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Now let us take a three-day journey into the wilderness to offer sacrifices to the Lord our God, or he may strike us with plagues or with the sword. But the king of Egypt said, Moses and Aaron, why are you taking the people away from their labor? Get back to your work. Then Pharaoh said, Look, the people of the land are now numerous, and you are stopping them from working. That same day, Pharaoh gave this order to the slave drivers and overseers in charge of the people. You are no longer to supply the people with straw for making bricks. Let them go and gather their own straw. But require them to make the same number of bricks as before. Don't reduce the quota. They are lazy. That is why they are crying out, let us go and sacrifice to our God. Make the work harder for the people so that they keep working and pay no attention to lies. Chapter 5, verse 22 to chapter 6, verse 8. Moses returned to the Lord and said, Why, Lord, have you brought trouble on this people? Is this why you sent me? Ever since I went to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has brought trouble on this people, and you have not rescued your people at all. Then the Lord said to Moses, Now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh. Because of my mighty hand, he will let them go. Because of my mighty hand, he will drive them out of his country. God also said to Moses, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, where they resided as foreigners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the Israelites, whom the Egyptians are enslaving, and I have remembered my covenant. Therefore say to the Israelites, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my own people, and I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God, who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. And I will bring you to the land I swore with uplifted hand to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you as a possession. 
I am the Lord. Here ends the lesson. Thanks, Ribs, very much indeed. Perhaps worth saying, for those who can hear another voice, that uh, there is simultaneous translation for our Ukrainian friends, and we're, we're just so delighted that it happens. Of course, uh, you're not going to be able to understand anything if you don't understand English. But it may be that those of us who understand English still really struggle to understand the Bible. Certainly bits, uh, one particular bit of this passage, I've wrestled with for years. So all of us need help, and I'm going to begin with a prayer. Father, we need your help to understand your word. And so by your Holy Spirit, help me to speak faithfully. Help us all to understand what you're saying to us corporately and individually. For Jesus' sake. Amen. Years ago, when I was still quite small, I was visiting my, my aunt. And she got out from a cupboard a very old book. It was fraying at the edges, it was dusty, and as I opened it, there were a list of names that meant nothing to me, and uh, I wasn't interested. But then she turned the page, and there at the bottom of the second page, where there were another long list of names, I saw these words, Vaughan Edward Roberts, born 17th March 1985. Actually, didn't quite say that, um, <laughs> but anyway... It, it gave my date of birth, and suddenly I was interested. Here was a book that when I began to read, it didn't seem interesting, it seemed irrelevant, and yet here I am in the book. It was our family Bible, and even though it was in Welsh, I couldn't understand it, I knew it was significant for me. And it may be that when we come to an ancient book like the book of Exodus in the Old Testament, our immediate instinct is, this has got nothing to do with me. It's about ancient people in another country. But if we're Christians, this is our family history. We're spiritually connected to this history. We're the spiritual ancestors of Abraham. And for those who aren't Christians, well, this is global history begins with the God who made everything and everyone, and that includes you. And although it does indeed describe events that happened a long, long time ago, they have a very contemporary resonance. We read about refugees, the people of Israel, about oppression and slavery. And so many peoples down the ages and around the world have found connection with the plight of the people of Israel. And for those of us who don't experience great political oppression, don't all of us at times feel oppressed by forces that we cannot control? Suddenly, these chapters become very relevant indeed. When you come across extreme difficulties, which we all do from time to time, whether globally, nationally, personally, one temptation is to big ourselves up and think, no, we, we can sort them all out. Or another might be to diminish them. Oh, they're no big deal, really, are they? And we'll find in chapters 4 and 5 that the writer of the book of Exodus will not allow to, us to do those first two things. For a start, won't allow us to big ourselves up and think, we can deal with this. Chapter 4 we have the inadequacy of Moses, and we might generalize from that and say that's the inadequacy of human beings. We can't deal with these problems. Chapter 5 
As we're tempted just to diminish the problems, chapter 5 is about the power of evil. It really is very powerful indeed, far more powerful than we are. So what hope is there? Chapter 6, the promise of God. So first, chapter 4, the inadequacy of human beings. If you were here last week, you remember we were at the burning bush, and Moses, the exile who's fled from Egypt where he grew up, having murdered an Egyptian and spent decades in Midian, now meets with God at the burning bush. And God commissions him to go back to Egypt to speak to Pharaoh and in the name of God to demand people, uh, freedom rather, for the people of Israel. And here he begins his response, or continues rather, his response to God. Chapter 4, verse 1, Moses answered, What if they do not believe me? the people of Israel, or listen to me and say, the Lord did not appear to you. There was a poll of the greatest Britain, I guess many would say someone like Winston Churchill, the greatest South African, Nelson Mandela, the greatest Israelite, well, Moses, surely. He's their, their hero. And yet here is this hero showing enormous doubt. Doubt not just in the Israelites, they're not going to believe you, God, but actually doubt in God, because God had explicitly said, chapter 3, verse 18, the elders of Israel will listen to you. And here Moses is saying, I don't think they will. He doesn't come across as very heroic. He's full of doubt, and God has to reassure him. And so we get these three miracles, or signs as they're described. Throw a staff down on the ground, and the staff is thrown on the ground. It suddenly becomes a wriggling snake. Pick it up from its tail. He picks it up. It becomes a staff again. And God says, show that to the Israelites. That'll persuade them. But recognizing even that might not work, there's another miracle or sign. Put your hand in your cloak, he does and it immediately becomes leprous when it takes, he takes it out. Puts it back in, it becomes clean again. If even that doesn't work, take some water from the Nile, pour it down onto some dry, graph, dry earth, it'll become blood. Surely that will persuade them. And of course, this is not just about persuading the Israelites. It's about reassuring Moses himself because of his doubt. This is a foretaste, if you like, of the plagues, which we'll think about next week. And yet, despite those dramatic miracles, Moses, supposedly this great hero, well, the writer is deliberately showing he's not heroic at all. He's not only doubting in God, he doubts in himself. Verse 10, Moses said to the Lord, pardon your servant, Lord. I have never been eloquent, neither in the past nor since you have spoken to your servant. I'm slow of speech and tongue. Was this just an excuse? Or did he generally have a problem in verbal communication? Could have been that. Either way, God says in effect, verse 11, it's not about you who gave human beings their mouths. I'm the great creator. And if I ask you to do something, you can be sure that I will give you the ability to do it. Verse 12, now go. I will help you speak and will teach you what to say. Surely that should have reassured him. And again, he's far from heroic. He says, verse 13, 
pardon your servant, Lord. Please send someone else. And God is angry with him. But in his amazing grace says, okay, you can use your brother Aaron as your spokesman. So here's the inadequacy of Moses. The great hero isn't a hero at all. Don't think that what's about to happen in this book, the great redemption of the people of Israel, is anything to do with him. It's God who's got to do this because he is far from heroic. He's full of doubt in God and in himself, and more than that, he's disobedient. And so we come to this mysterious little section, verses 24 to 26, which I've puzzled about for years, and I'm not the only one. Bible commentators have struggled. There are many elements of these verses that are hard to understand. Moses is returning to Egypt. And then we read verse 24, at a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him. It doesn't actually say Moses, but most think it probably was Moses, and was about to kill him. Very peculiar indeed. God has just told him to do a job, and now God is about to kill him. What is going on? Why? There's a clue in the next verse. Zipporah is Moses' wife. But Zipporah took a flint knife, cut off her son's foreskin, and touched Moses' feet with it. Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me, she said. Well, here's my suggestion, and not certainly unique to me by any means, as to what's going on. It seems that Moses is seriously ill. He's about to die. And it's quite clear from the Bible that uh, sickness is not a judgment on people's individual sin. That is very rarely the case. It's a result of sin in the world, but because someone is sick, that is not God's judgment on them. But just occasionally, in very specific circumstances... The Bible says, actually, this particular sickness is because of this particular sin. And it seems that Zipporah, Moses' wife, has this spiritual discernment to recognize that this is because of Moses' sin. And in particular, the sin that he'd not circumcised his son. And we might think, this is a technicality. Why would God get so fussed about that? But this is no technicality. When God entered into a covenant with Abraham the great founding father of the people of Israel, he made unconditional promises and then he called, he commanded the Israelites to make sure that their boys, as very young boys, were circumcised. And this was a way of them recognizing that they were the people of God. They were people of covenant. They were trusting God's promises. They were committed to obeying God's laws. And so by not getting his son circumcised, Moses was disobeying God at a fundamental level. See, all people have sinned, all deserve God's judgment. God in his grace provides a way of escape, a promise. And circumcision is, as it were, a way of saying, yes, we are people of the promise. And Moses has not circumcised his son. It seems to be a way of saying that actually Moses is part of the problem, the fundamental problem that lies behind the whole Bible is human sin. And the only way of escape is God's grace, God's promise to save. And Moses has not made sure that his son comes under the word of grace. He's disobeyed. So he deserves judgment 
if God is going to judge the Egyptians, well, Moses himself deserves judgment. He deserves to die. And Zipporah circumcises their boy and touches Moses with the foreskin and then says, you're a bridegroom of blood, very mysterious phrase. But it seems, it's as if you're saying, you were my bridegroom, but through marriage, and then I, I was about to lose you, and it's as if you come back to me, and now you're my bridegroom of blood. It's the blood that was shed that allows you to come back to me, and you're still alive. And there's a little foretaste, I think, of the Passover, which we're going to hear about in a couple of weeks' time, where God is about to judge the Egyptians, but the Israelites deserve God's judgment too, and the only way of escape is as blood is shed, and their judgment is taken, as it were, by another. It's prefiguring ultimately the fact that we're all part of the problem, but God in his grace allows Jesus to shed his blood for us, that those who shelter under his blood can be forgiven. So how are we going to deal with the mess of the world? And straight away, it's as if the writer says, please don't misunderstand the message of this book. This is not about the prince of Egypt, as that film was called. It's about God. No human hero can deal with the mess. We're in troubling times. Economic challenges, social challenges. In the 1930s, when there were real problems around the Western world, people looked for human heroes. And they, they decided to be blind to their faults because we need strong leaders. There's the danger we're not learning from the lessons of history. And today, we look for strong, heroic leaders. And we're prepared to ignore or forgive their faults because they're going to sort out the problems. No human hero can sort out the problem. They're deeply flawed. And in case we believe the world's message, you can be the hero. Search for the hero inside yourself. No, we're part of the problem too. There's the inadequacy of human beings. Chapter 5 moves us to the power of evil. Here's another way of trying to make things a bit easier. One is to think we humans can sort it out. Another is to say the problem's really not that bad after all. And chapter 5 confronts us very powerfully with the power of evil as we're introduced for the first time to the figure of Pharaoh who represents evil, as it were. He is the power that crushes the Israelites. And look how he begins his opening speech. Chapter 5, verse 1, Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says, let my people go. At last, it seems, they've discovered some courage. It's a bold thing to say to the most powerful leader in that part of the world. And verse 2 Here's Pharaoh's response. Who is the Lord that I should obey him and let Israel go? It's contemptuous. Why should I bother with this this Lord? The Hebrews were an oppressed people with no power. He could crush them at his will. And the impotence of the Hebrews surely reflected on the impotence of their God. If he was powerful, he wouldn't let them be crushed like that. So just as he could ignore the people, so he could ignore their God. Who is the Lord? And he's irritated by this request. It's impudent. And so he punishes the Israelites as a result. 
And so, as we read in the story, he makes sure that from now on, the straw that was necessary for the making of bricks, what you do is get little bits of straw that would be mixed up with the clay before it was baked. That would make sure that, that the whole thing would bind better together. It's a crucial ingredient in the brick. And whereas before, this chopped straw would be brought to the Israelites and then they would complete the process of brick making, now Pharaoh says, you've got to go and find the straw yourself. Extra labor, but no extra time. And when they fall behind the schedule, not surprisingly, they are punished wickedly. Here's the power of evil. God issues a command to Pharaoh through Moses and Aaron, let my people go, and Pharaoh dismisses it. Pharaoh issues a command, go and get the straw yourself, and it's immediately obeyed. And when they can't fulfill what they're asked to do, they're beaten and crushed. There's the power of evil. And we need to face up to it. And there's a mystery here. Here is the sovereign God, the God who the Bible introduces as the great creator of everything. His word is just ignored and dismissed. And here is a mere human leader whose words has crushing authority and power. There's no getting away from it. There's mystery there, isn't there? The Bible, by the way, never hides from that mystery. Read the Psalms, they're full of it. Lord, why? If you are the King of kings and Lord of lords, why is it that this evil reigns unchecked in my life? in our family, in this city, this country, this world. And if you haven't faced those problems, you haven't truly faced this evil. Don't diminish it. Don't pretend it's not really that bad. It's not really that powerful. It's crushing. Sin destroys relationships. We've seen that earlier in the Bible. The first sin of Genesis 3, Adam and Eve, leads to the first murder, Cain and Abel, chapter 4. It destroys societies. You see it here. You see, here is a a demagogue setting himself up as the ruler of Egypt. He doesn't submit to any higher lord. He dismisses the God who made the world and everything in it. And with no higher power, he can do exactly what he wants. Might is right. And he crushes the people. And sin, of course, we know for ourselves, destroys individuals. We might not be able to connect with, as it were, external slavery, although some will have experienced something that comes close to it. But don't we know something of a slavery within? That we can't control the forces that try and drag us down. And even when we recognize, no, that is evil, that is bad, that is wrong, it is destroying me, it is destroying others. Can we stop it? Not in our own strength. The Lord Jesus Christ said, anyone who sins is a slave to sin. The inadequacy of human beings, we're all part of the problem. The power of evil, this is not a small problem. It's oppressive. And we've got no power over it. So what hope is there? And what a relief it is to come to chapter 6. The promise of God. Things aren't looking good. 
Ever since Moses and Aaron went to speak to Pharaoh, the situation just gets worse. The Israelite leaders complain to Moses, Moses complains to God, and then chapter 6, God speaks. Verse 1, now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh. Because of my mighty hand, not some human leader, because of my mighty hand, he will let them go. Because of my mighty hand, he will drive them out of his country. It's an amazing promise. And then he puts his name on it. If I was to say, I'll, I'll give you 10 million pounds and then sign my name under that promise, it would mean nothing. But if Bill Gates said, I'll give you 10 million pounds and then signed his name, well, that would mean something. And here's a promise, I will let you go. And then God puts his name under it. And this next speech from verses 2 to 8 dominated by the words, I am the Lord. Those are the opening words, you notice. God also said to Moses, verse 2, I am the Lord. It's there at the beginning of verse 6. Therefore say to the Israelites, I am the Lord. It concludes the speech, end of verse 8. I am the Lord, Yahweh. The name that God revealed to Moses at the burning bush. Verse 3, I appear to Abraham, to Isaac and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. And there's some confusion or mystery there, because if you read the book of Genesis, you'll find on a number of occasions, God is referred to as Yahweh, the Lord. And so what's going on here? Was it that the, the patriarchs, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, knew the name the Lord, but they didn't know the significance of it, and that's the new thing that Moses gets? Not a new name, but a name with, with new meaning and significance. More likely, I think, the writer of Genesis used a word for God that the readers knew, but it actually was a bit anachronistic just as we might refer to the Apostle Paul as Paul from his birth, whereas actually he was always Saul until after his conversion when he got a new name, Paul, but we might call him one because it's the same individual, even if the new name came a bit later. I am who I am. Or possibly translated, I will be who I will be. If you want to know who I am, watch me. And you might say that the whole of the book of Exodus is a revelation of what it means that God is the Lord. It's a revelation of himself. It's why we've called this series, Behold Your God. It's as if God is responding to that taunt of Pharaoh, who is the Lord? And God replies, I am the Lord. Watch me and you'll see who I am. He's the God of creation that's clear from the beginning of the Bible. And he's the God of covenant. Verse 4, I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan where they resided as foreigners. And so as the covenant God, he makes these wonderful promises. Verse 6, the promise of rescue. I will free you from being slaves to them. Verse 7, the promise of relationship. I will take you as my own people and I will be your God. Verse 8, the promise of rest. I will bring you to the land I swore with uplifted hand to give to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, the land of Canaan. And are these not our longings too? 
rescue, freedom. Don't we long to be free? Seneca, the Roman philosopher in the, in the first century, said this, I am in the grip of habits that fetter me. I cannot escape from the pit into which I have fallen unless an arm from above shall rescue me. Don't we long for freedom? Whether it's from political oppression or psychological oppression, spiritual oppression and sin. Don't we long, long for love? I will take you as my own people. And how we long for acceptance. I'm just reflecting with a, a friend recently, it's 50 years ago, um, in the last couple of weeks that we went to the same school together. And I can still remember in that first week, so it's almost exactly 50 years ago, uh, an older boy in the first year was very lonely. He'd not made any friends that first year. And he came up to me. I can still remember him saying it. Will you be my friend? And we met at a reunion about five, ten years ago, and he remembered asking me that question, me saying, yes, I will. And isn't there something in the, in the human heart that, that's longing for a friend? Will you be my friend? Will you accept me? Will you love me? There's a desperate insecurity and a sense that if you really knew what I'm like, you'll just turn away from me. And God, of course, knows exactly what we're like. He knows what the people of Israel are like. And he doesn't choose them or set his love upon them because of something noble and impressive about them. No, he loves them because he loves them because he loves them. It's pure grace. And in Christ, God has set his love upon us. And through the blood of Christ, he says, you're welcome. And then that longing for rest, we might say a longing for home. Did you notice the prayer that we prayed, the, the Church of England collect for today? Lord, you have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless till they find their rest in you. It's actually a quotation from Augustine, Hippo, the early church bishop. It's a beautiful prayer. There's a homesickness in the human heart. And so for some of you, 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 you get that. You've just arrived in a new place, a new city, a new country. But even those of us who'd never left home have a homesickness because we were made for God. And we live our lives east of Eden, away from the Garden of Eden, as it were. And God is promising to bring us back home. And what we find in the book of Exodus is a shadow of the ultimate rescue that came through the Lord Jesus Christ. The ultimate rest relationship made possible through him. The ultimate rest. We haven't got it yet. For those of us who know Christ, we've got it in part. We've been redeemed from the slavery of sin. We're no longer under its dominance. And yet, the rescue is not complete yet. We still fight against sin. We're still looking for the time when there'll be no sin. The relationship is there by the Holy Spirit, but we're still waiting for, as it were, the consummation when we'll be in the presence of God himself. We'll be at rest for eternity. And in the meantime, what have we got? A promise. A promise with God's name on it. A name that's been proved to be trustworthy over many years of history through all the Old Testament, and through Christ and his death and resurrection and in our lives today. The inadequacy of humans. Don't look for a hero. Don't try to be the hero. You can't sort out the problems. The power of evil. Don't diminish the reality. But the promise of God. Trust in him through Christ. Let's pray.
Loving Father, thank you for the power of your name, for what you've revealed about yourself, through what you've said, through what you've done, above all, through your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So help us to trust in you and the salvation you offer through Christ by your Spirit. Help us to live daily in the light of that promise. For your name's sake. Amen.